Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. California is home to 12% of the overall U.S. population, but half of the nation's unsheltered residents. We often hear the explanation that our state's homeless population is so high because homeless people come here from someplace else, traveling to California for the wide range of social services available and the good weather. A new study from the UCSF Benioff Homeless and Housing Initiative debunks that myth entirely. Here are some top findings. Nine out of 10 participants in the study lost their last housing in California, and about three quarters of them are living unhoused in the same county where they last had housing. It's not surprising that when we look at California's homelessness crisis, all roads point to the state's other crisis, housing. Today on Fifth Emission, I speak with the study's lead investigator and director of the UCSF Benioff Homeless and Housing Initiative, Dr. Margot Kuschel. She's also a physician at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. We discussed the study she led, which was the largest examination of homeless adults since 1996. What more detailed portrait of the state's homeless population emerged from the research? And how do the findings point to policy solutions? What is San Francisco doing a good job of? And why are challenges in the city so acute? Dr. Margot Cuchel, great to have you on Fifth Emission. It's great to be here. Dr. Cuchel, this was the largest study of homeless adults in nearly three decades. Tell me about the ambition of the study and what kind of main questions were you and the team looking to answer? We were trying to get what's called a representative sample. It's basically a random sample that doesn't leave anyone out rural, urban, northern, southern, engaged with services, not engaged with services, you name it. And then we added in these in-depth interviews. So we did 3,200 questionnaires. Our incredible team sat on riverbeds and encampments in shelters with, you know, Wi-Fi hotspots. And then about one in eight people, we selected to go even further, where we turned on a microphone, asked them a series of open-ended questions, and had them help us really contextualize our findings and understand it. Mm. Now, this study, as you mentioned, focuses on what's happening in California, and that matters since the state has a disproportionately high homeless population. And as you mentioned, thousands of participants helped you get this fuller portrait of the homeless population. What new details have we learned about the demographics and their life experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think there were a few really key findings. One is that nine out of 10 people lost their housing in California. You know, we often speak in California about like people rushing into the state did not find it at all. In fact, some of the one in 10 who hadn't lost their housing in California told us that they were longtime Californians who lost their housing someplace else and thought they would come home. Other thing is that black and brown folks are really disproportionately represented. That is the biggest overrepresentation. So Black folks make up about 6% of the state, about 26% of people experiencing homelessness. Folks identify as Native or Indigenous, 
3%, that was their sole identity. If you add in people who shared an identity, so Black and Native or White and Native, that comes up to 12%. That was, I think, a really important finding. And folks are getting old. About half of the single adults were 50 and older. And of those 50 and older, 41% had never been homeless before the age of 50. And what kind of life experiences did they have which, you know, increased their vulnerabilities to homelessness? This is a story of deep poverty in a state with incredibly high housing costs. So the monthly income of everyone in the house, whether it was a single person or multiple people, was less than $1,000, $960 a month in a state where housing costs are out of control. What we heard from people overwhelmingly was at the end of the day, they just couldn't afford their housing. Now, in general, lots of these folks had had lots of trauma throughout their lives, lots of physical and sexual violence that they had experienced. Many folks had had interactions with the criminal justice system. Many folks had had other struggles throughout their life. But really, the far and way driver of what was going on was people simply couldn't afford their housing. And was there a difference between maybe renters or homeowners? What did you learn there? Very few homeowners. That's a pretty rare phenomenon. Folks in the study wound up being divided into three buckets. About one in five came directly from an institution. Lots of folks being released from prison, being released from jail, a lot of folks leaving drug treatment programs where the program ended or their time that they had served ended and they had no place to go. So that was about 19%. About 32% of folks came directly from a place where they had a lease or a mortgage. It was like 4% had a mortgage of that group. And then the rest, well, you know, about half came from what we call the double-to-up situation or non-leaseholder. These were mostly people who had been leaseholders in the past, but let's say they had been threatened with eviction or had been evicted, had a wildfire experience, you know, where their home burned down or something, and they were really crammed in with friends or family. Tensions ran high, and they sort of lost their ability to stay there. But when we asked people what the cause was, it was money. And when we asked people what would have prevented it, relatively small amounts of money would have prevented the homelessness in nearly everybody. One of the things that struck me about this study, Dr. Cushell, was that people can become homeless very quickly and with very little warning. For people leasing their homes, your study found that the median length of warning time they had was just 10 days. What gap in resources does that point to? Yeah, for those leaseholders, it was 10 days. For the people without leases, it was one day. In California, we have relatively strong laws to protect renters, but either they weren't working or nearly everybody was a pay or quit. The one way you can be kicked out really fast is if you fall far enough behind in your rent that you get what's called a three-day pay or quit. And so we heard from lots of people that they basically were served with this. The biggest reason people told us is that they lost their job or decreased their income. Lots of folks have said their hours got cut back. They you know, lost one of their two jobs. Someone in their household lost their job. They just fell behind in their income, got this three-day warning, and then were out without a chance to even look up. We were struck by how few people had sought help, and we used a really 
expansive definition of help. Like, did you ask your family for money or advice? Did you ask your church? Did you go to a lawyer? Did you get help from the government or from a nonprofit? And only about one in three people had asked anyone for help. And that was generally people asking their friends, their family. I think this is both a challenge and an opportunity. We need to increase awareness that this could happen. And then we need to have the services available. Homelessness is so incredibly costly that preventing it is worth doing. So, I mean, as you mentioned People just were not aware of how to access homeless prevention services. Is You mentioned an awareness issue. Is that also just a distrust issue of like government and local services? What else could it be? So we asked that. And my study team told me that in those in-depth interviews, it was almost hard because they would sort of say, so what? why did you not ask anyone for services or for help? And people were kind of stunned. They were like, what? what help would I have asked for? It was almost that people weren't even aware of the possibility. Yeah. People's thought was what help? Who would I have asked? Why would they have helped me? What help would have been available? Uh, You know, I should say the caveat, obviously we only interviewed people who are experiencing homelessness. It's of course possible that people who got help never became homeless. So it is worth mentioning that it's not like we looked at everybody who could have possibly gotten help. Maybe people who got help just didn't become homeless, but lots of people became homeless. And so there's a lot of work to do. Based on the findings from the study, are there any policy solutions for California to fix its homelessness crisis? Dr. Margot Cushell shares after a quick break. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Dr. Kushel, once people become homeless, they face a variety of dangers and risks, which your study outlined. And in a previous Chronicle story by my colleague, reporter Kevin Fagan, you said, quote, there is no medicine as powerful as housing. That's a helpful paradigm shift, especially as cities like San Francisco try to understand the costs of homelessness as well as solutions to many problems, right? Absolutely. I mean, I'm a physician. I trained as a physician, but I spend more of my time now working on homelessness because even with all of our amazing medical care, there is nothing that I can do that makes the same difference in someone's life, in someone's health as getting them housing. And conversely, there's nothing that I can do that's really worse than having them become homeless. And once people are homeless, the reach of my ability to impact 
their lives is so small. So I do think that there really is no medicine as powerful as housing. I think homelessness comes with tremendous costs, most of all for the people who experience it whose lives are completely uprooted, their health declines, their mental health declines, you know, they're exposed to tons of violence, victimization, lots more trauma, you know, homelessness sort of makes it harder to get housed at the end. But also, it just really ties our hands, let's say, as healthcare providers, of what I can really do to help folks, whether it's with a mental health problem, a substance use problem, or a health problem, pretty much everything that we do depends on people having the safety and security of home. Well, let's shift our conversation to policy recommendations that are based on your studies findings, because we want to talk about solutions too. What are some tangible ways that the state could make housing more affordable to people who are at the highest risk of homelessness, since the housing crisis is really at the center of all of this? Housing crisis is at the center, and we have to remember that the people who experience homelessness are people who we call extremely low income. It's a word that basically means that people make less than 30% of the median income of the area. That's where we need to be focusing our energy. And in some ways, that's the hardest place to focus the energy. That's the place where the market really can't solve this, it's always going to need a subsidy. So we need to do everything that we can. We desperately need the federal government to invest more money to help us create the housing and sustain the housing. We need things like rental vouchers that allow people to pay for the housing. Of course, there has to be housing there for people to access. But one of the many things that keeps housing from being there is not having the sustainable payment. We talk a lot about different ways that the state or local governments could help this as well, getting rid of zoning issues that block the development of housing, expanding programs that we know that work. You know, I use as a model something like HomeKey, where the state quickly transitioned housing, hotel rooms that were empty and other things into permanent housing. Our second recommendation is really to lean into prevention. To do that, we have to identify who's at the highest risk. Prevention works better if you give it to the people who are most at risk, which is surprisingly hard to find, but I think we can do a lot more and it needs to be embedded in regular systems of care. It needs to be embedded so that if someone shows up at the hospital or, you know, we're trying to look for signs that they could be at risk of homelessness. The third thing is we need to increase supportive services and to fund those. Those are things like mental health care, substance use treatment, medical care, personal care for people who are older and need help staying at home. These are not a substitute for housing. Without the housing, these don't really work, but they need to be there to support people, first of all, to keep them alive while they're homeless, but also to support them and to make it more likely that the housing is successful. We need to realize that a lot of this is a housing side, but some of it is an income side. People were extremely low income. 45% of people across the state experiencing homelessness were looking for work. They wanted to work. We need to make that easier for people. So we need to work on employment supports. But we also need to recognize that many of the folks have really significant disabling conditions, and we need to help to get them benefits. The final two recommendations are, since we're not getting out of this crisis anytime soon, we need to be reaching out to people 
where they are and keeping them safe with a particular focus on people who are unsheltered, who are the least served. And finally, since black and brown folks, particularly black folks, indigenous folks, and increasingly Latinx folks are the ones being affected by this crisis, we need to really embed racial equity into everything that we do. It's kind of a cross-cutting issue. So knowing those sort of policy recommendations, does that point to areas where cities like San Francisco are attempting those efforts but could ramp up or pivot? I mean, San Francisco, despite all the bad press and bad news, is trying some things. San Francisco is a really, really hard way to go. We're a a dense city. We're a small city. It's an extraordinarily expensive city. Anything and everything that we can do to increase our housing supply, particularly our housing for our lowest income community members, has to be the most important thing. I think there's more work San Francisco could do on prevention. We have a wonderful healthcare system, but we really need to align it. You know, we found across the state, one in five people with a substance use problem was asking for and trying to get treatment and unable to get it. That number should be zero. Mm -hmm. This study was so comprehensive. Were there any limits to the study or something that you wish you could have looked further into that maybe you just weren't able to do it in this particular research? You know, I think because this is what's called a cross-sectional study, we met people once. We didn't test, for instance, different interventions. It wasn't the goal of the study to say, well, why don't we try this and see if it works better than that? I think that that work is ongoing. We didn't include anyone under 18. We just felt like it was out of the scope of the study. But that's an incredibly important population that needs and deserves attention, whether that's homeless youth, so young 12 to 17-year-olds. We did include the 18 to 24 who are also part of the homeless youth community, but we need much more awareness and help for homeless youth as well as children and homeless families. Obviously, that's something we wish we could have done and would look forward to seeing in the future. Well, Dr. Cashel, such a compelling study. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Margot Cushell is a physician at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and is the director of the UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative. For more on the study she led, check out the report from Chronicle reporter Mallory Mensch. It's online at sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. There, you'll find links to the study itself, too. Thank you to Gary Baca for editing this episode and to you for listening.